And eventually, I might. But anyway, happy belated Thanksgiving to you all. And um, uh, I, I do hope you had a good Thanksgiving and uh, took opportunity to give the Lord thanks for his blessings in our lives. We uh, could never count them all. We don't realize them all, even on our best day. And so we are grateful to God for his blessings in our lives. And you all are um, those blessings in my lives, in, in my life. Many of them uh, are right here. And so I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful to Parkside. I'm grateful to uh, the relationships that we have here and the encouragement that I receive from you. And, um, and I am honored and blessed by the opportunity to uh, know Christ with you that we've been called to be family together. And so if you would open your Bible to Matthew chapter 1, we're going to begin a uh, brief series on Christmas. And uh, you can see today's message is called The Miracle of Christmas. And uh, that really should be the miracles because they are numerous. But um, we're calling it The Miracle of Christmas. And I want to uh, read for us today just that concluding paragraph there in Matthew chapter 1 to prepare us for our message today. Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come before you now as a congregation to worship you. We acknowledge that you are God, our creator and sustainer and redeemer. And we worship you and we honor your name this morning. And we do so together and we are glad to be able to do so together. We bow down before you. And we praise you for what we get to celebrate this time of year as we come to this Advent season where we celebrate the coming of Christ. We praise you for sending your Son to us and for us to redeem us, to redeem for yourself a people for your own possession. So we praise you 
We praise you this Christmas season. We praise you for what we will talk about today and for the what this whole season is about. That you sent your Son, the eternal Son of God, to be born as a baby, to enter into humanity, to take on flesh, to become one of us. And Father, today as we celebrate that miracle, as we talk about that miracle, we also celebrate what that miracle means and what your Son accomplished when He obeyed in our place and died in our place and was raised that we might have newness of life by faith in Him. So Christmas points forward and we want to celebrate that today. And so I ask, Father, that as we have your word open in front of us, as we get to spend a few minutes together meditating on what you have here, I pray that you would speak to us from your word. Pray that your spirit would be at work in our lives and in this time as your word is proclaimed. We submit to you. We submit this time to you. We seek to hear from you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've called this the miracle of Christmas, and that raises the question, are miracles real? Are miracles real? And uh, if, if I were to be able to assess how often we use the word miracle and in what context we use the word miracle, I bet we would, uh, we would find that We use the word miracle often when we've applied for a job, for example, that a lot of people are applying for. And we got the job, and hey, it's a miracle because I wasn't the most qualified person. Or or maybe I got sick with something, and the doctor said it was going to be uh, one kind of prognosis, and I recovered more quickly than they said. Or they said I would not, and I recovered, uh, and that's a miracle, right? Or maybe uh, something as simple as, you know, the weather was really bad and I was driving home from Lake Tahoe and there was snow and ice on the road and I made it home safely. It was a miracle, right? So we use the word miracle in a lot of ways. And I would say that maybe the way we use that word the most is actually not what miracle means. Those things that I described and many other that appear in our minds are not actually miraculous. They are fortuitous. Or serendipitous. If we weren't Christians, we would say, I had good luck, right? But we don't believe in luck because we have a sovereign God. So we say miracle. It was a miracle. But when something is truly miraculous, that means something happened within creation that is impossible according to the laws that govern creation that God from outside of creation reached into creation and did something impossible that could not be according to the laws that govern creation, but He did it because He Himself is outside of creation and He has temporarily overridden the rules of that creation. That's a miracle. And so when we read in the Gospels and we read that in John chapter 9, Jesus healed the man born blind. That was a miracle. Jesus overrode the laws of nature 
to make that man whose eyes had never worked so that his eyes worked. Or when there was a a lame person and Jesus would heal that lame person, someone who had never walked or hadn't walked for decades can hop up and grab their mat and walk away. That's a miracle. That is God reaching from outside of creation and overriding the rules, the laws that govern creation. That's a miracle. When Jesus, standing outside of that tomb in John chapter 11, said, Lazarus, come forth. And that dead body came to life. That was a miracle. That was a miracle. And so I asked the question, are miracles real? Miracles are very real. And when we talk about Christmas, we are talking about the miraculous, truly miraculous in that strict sense of the word, not in the sense of the word that says, well, it was a, it was a good thing that happened, or it really didn't look like it was going to, and then, and then we pulled it off. It was a miracle. No, this is, Christmas is about the celebration of what is truly and accurately and specifically miraculous. And so today in our passage, we're not going to focus on the whole passage. We're going to focus on that quotation there in verse 23. And we're going to see that there are a couple of miracles wrapped up in this little quotation that specifically have to do with Christmas that we need to think about. We need to remember when we celebrate this Christmas season, when we give the gifts and when we hang the the decorations and when we, you know, party together and do all of those things, we need to keep in mind that Christmas is a celebration of the miraculous, that the advent of the Son of God is a miracle. It's actually numerous miracles, and we're going to look at three of those today. Verse 23 of Matthew 1 is this quotation from the Old Testament that says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. The first miracle we want to look at today is the virgin birth. The virgin birth itself. And this quotation here is a quotation from Isaiah, and so we want to look first of all at Isaiah's context. We'll look very briefly. So if you want to turn back in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 7, we won't be there very long. But Isaiah chapter 7, you're going to find uh, where this verse is taken. And what's going on in this passage, in in Isaiah's context here, is that this you've had to turn, you know, hundreds of pages to the left. That tells you this is hundreds of years before the birth of Christ. This uh, This is way in the past. This is in the heart of the Old Testament. And in Isaiah's context, the nation of Israel, or particularly Judah in the south, was being threatened. King Ahaz was the king at the time, and he was the king of the southern kingdom of Judah, and he was being threatened. He was being threatened by the king of the northern kingdom of Israel in cahoots with the king of Assyria, and they were threatening to, excuse me, uh, uh, of Syria, were threatening to come against him, and they were going to lay siege to Jerusalem. They were going to take it over, and they were scared. The king was scared. The people were scared, and their, their, uh, their knees were shaking. They were not confident about this. And so in that context, with great fear, God sends Isaiah to Ahaz with this message in verse 4 of Isaiah chapter 7. He says, God says to Ahaz, be careful. 
Be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. At the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. These armies are amassed against you. Their kings are against you. They want to do you harm. They want to bulldoze you. They want to run over you. But God sends Isaiah with the message, do not fear. Don't let your heart be faint. And the reason he can say that is because of verse 7. It will not stand and it shall not come to pass. And so here, God comes on the scene and sends his prophet to speak to the king and say, I know you're shaking. I know you're scared. I know you're afraid. I know enemies greater than you have joined forces against you and you're scared. Don't be scared. Don't be scared. And here, let me give you a sign. Let me give you a sign to encourage you. Ask something of me, even something great. Ask a sign of me and I will give you this sign and that Giving of the sign will encourage you that I can actually do this thing of protecting you against these people. And so he he encourages Ahaz, he commands him to ask for a sign. And what did Ahaz do? He wouldn't do it. He wouldn't do it. Ahaz said in verse 12, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. It sounds very righteous, doesn't it? Sounds very holy. Well, I don't want to put the Lord to the test. Doesn't Jesus say that during the temptations later on? You should not put the Lord your God to the test. Well, by saying I'm not going to put the Lord to the test, he is actually putting the Lord to the test. Because the Lord said, ask a sign and I will give you a sign. Go ahead, ask. What do you want? What shall I do? What shall I do to show you my power to deliver you? And Ahaz says, oh, no, no, I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't dare. To ask for a sign. And so he actually responds in disbelief. He responds by by putting the Lord to the test. And so we have the Lord's response down in verse 13. Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. So I told you, ask for a sign and you wouldn't do it. Here's the sign the Lord will give. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Here's what God's going to do. The Lord is going to give a child, a very special child. The Lord goes on to say that before this child is old enough to know right from wrong, disaster will strike. Things are going to change in a big way. The rebellion of Ahaz in his own heart, the rebellion of the people against God would bring judgment upon the land. And now we even have a timetable. A woman who is now a virgin, she will have a child. She'll bear that child. She'll raise that child. And before that child knows right from wrong, it's going to happen. The clock is ticking. And so that's Isaiah's context. Well, you can read that that word there, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Well, strictly speaking, in Hebrew, that word virgin just means a young woman of marriageable age. It doesn't say anything about her chastity. It doesn't say anything about whether she's been with a man. It just means that she's of this particular age. 
And so in the Hebrew context, if you were just translating along, if you were just reading along in Hebrew, it would sound more like the young woman will conceive and bear a son. And so the question is, why is it translated virgin in your Bible? And more specifically, why by the time you get to the New Testament, is it translated virgin? Well, the reason is because of who this child is. What is spoken about this child? The child is called Emmanuel. And Emmanuel is a, is a unique name. Now, I've met a lot of people named Emmanuel in, in our day and age. But if you look in the Bible, there are only two separate places where the name Emmanuel is used. And both of them we're talking about today. In Isaiah chapter 7 and 8, the name Emmanuel is used. And then in Matthew chapter 1, and those are the only places it occurs. It's a unique name. And we're going to talk more about what it means later on, about what the significance of the fact that it means God with us. God with us. So that's a unique name and unique in the Bible, and it's a unique meaning. And so that kind of tells you right off the bat, even reading Isaiah chapter 7, this child is special. There's something special about this child. But then as we keep on reading in Isaiah chapter 7, Isaiah chapter 8, Isaiah chapter 9, we read about this same child that he's going to be called not only Emmanuel, this very unique name, God with us, but he's also going to be called Wonderful Counselor. He's going to be called Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is a unique child. This is not your average child of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end Isaiah chapter 9 verses 6 and 7 that's this child this child and so this child is so unique that even though the Hebrew word just means a young woman of marriageable age without any comment on her chastity or or anything like that by the time the Septuagint translators came along Hundreds of years later, they're translating from the Hebrew into Greek because the world situation had changed and people needed the, the language in, uh, of the Bible to be changed from the Hebrew to the Greek. They needed to read in Greek. The word that they chose means virgin. So even though the Hebrew seems to be more general, as the Jews studied this passage, as the translators came to this passage, they realized this, this isn't just any old child. This is a very special child. And the birth of this child is very special. It's very unique. And so the Greek word that the translators use means virgin. This woman will be a virgin. Well, why does it matter? Why does it matter? Why make such a big deal out of that? I do like Greek and I do like Hebrew and like to talk about it, but that's not why it matters. The virgin birth matters for other reasons. The virgin birth matters because of the entire storyline of the Bible. That as you think your way through the Bible, chapter 1 is creation, it's incredible. Chapter 2 is a retelling of creation with the focus on man and the relationship between man and creation. That's wonderful. Chapter 1 is great. Chapter 2 is great. You get to chapter 3 and everything goes south. The wheels fall off. That's when sin enters the picture in Genesis chapter 3. And at that time, sin entered into humanity. And we read about in Romans chapter 5 that every person 
born of Adam has that same sin nature, has that same guilt because of Adam's sin and the same propensity to sin that Adam had. Everyone born of natural generation, everyone coming from Adam has that same sin nature and that same guilt before God. The Bible tells us that we, that's, that's from the father, Adam, our first father passed down. And so when we come to Jesus, Jesus doesn't have an earthly father. He is not connected to Joseph. He doesn't have a dad who has that same sin nature. He has a mom who's human. He has a mom who's a sinner. He has a mom who's just like us. She's descended from Adam. But that guilt is passed from father to son. And so why is it important that Jesus, the Savior, the Son of God, be born of a virgin? It's because he's not descended from Adam by regular generation, by the regular means. He was not born the same way you and I were. And so that sin nature is not passed to him from his father. That guilt that Adam incurred that we were all born into, he was not born into it. He did not incur that guilt. He instead was born of a virgin. And that which was conceived in Mary's womb was from the Holy Spirit. And so the virgin birth is important to us because Jesus, born as one of us, yet does not have the flaw, does not have the sin, does not have the guilt or the sin nature that we all have. And so he enters into the picture as true human, but without Adam's guilt, without Adam's sin. And so the first miracle of Christmas is the virgin birth. The fact that God created life within the womb of a virgin without involvement of any human father, that he placed life there so that Jesus was born of a virgin. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and shall bear a son. And this brings us to the second miracle of creation, which is not of creation, of Christmas, I'm sorry. The second miracle of Christmas, which is the incarnation. The incarnation. It's already been mentioned this morning that this baby is the seed of the woman. From Genesis chapter 3, if you'll turn back to there momentarily, Genesis chapter 3, we have the first giving of the gospel. So I said in Genesis chapter 1, things were great, and we have the story of creation. Genesis chapter 2, we've got a retelling of, of creation with the emphasis on man and man's relationship with this created instance, this created world. But in, in chapter 3, we have sin entering the picture. And Adam and Eve, they take of that fruit and they eat and they fall, and their resulting judgment is pronounced upon them. The, the curses that we have there in, uh, in Genesis chapter 3 are awful. And they strike right at the core of who we are. But it's interesting when you look at this first curse, sin entered by means of the serpent. And so the Lord God said to the serpent in verse 14 of Genesis 3, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all 
beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. But listen to this curse upon the serpent. In verse 15, I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So this is the curse that's given to this serpent. And in this curse, the fall has just happened. And we're about to see that the woman is going to be cursed in her environment and the man's going to be cursed in his environment. But the curse to the serpent is actually incredible blessing to mankind. The promise here is that there will be the seed of the woman who will come onto the scene and will crush the head of that serpent so that there will be deliverance come, there will be salvation given. And so this baby that's talked about in Matthew chapter 1 to start off the New Testament, to start off the Gospel of Matthew, this baby that's discussed is this baby, the seed of the woman who's going to crush the head of this serpent. So, Come thou long-expected Jesus indeed. Now he has come on to the scene, and this is, this is miraculous. But how, how's it going to be? What's it, what's it going to involve? Well, secondly, not only is this baby the seed of the woman, this baby is also the fulfillment of the promise to David, which we've also talked about today from Second Samuel chapter 7. This promise to David. The Davidic covenant, we call it, in Second Samuel chapter 7. There are a few chapters in the Bible that I always encourage people to memorize. You don't have to memorize the whole chapter, but at least memorize the words so that you know where it is. In Second Samuel 7, that Davidic covenant is a powerful one that you need to know. Genesis 3 in the fall, of course, is another one you need to know. But in that Davidic covenant in Second Samuel 7, we have these words spoken to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be a son to me. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Right in that covenant with David, God speaks to him and says, Your kingdom is not just this place and this time. I'm going to raise up one of your own to establish a kingdom that's going to last forever, that will have no end, that will continue and be established forever. Well, it's interesting that promise made to David where he would expect this Messiah to come. He would he would look to the future, look to God fulfilling this promise that he was going to send his own sons, the son of David, whose kingdom would be established forever. That same promise is referred to in Isaiah chapter nine. So this. We read about this verse, the promise of the virgin conceiving and bearing a son. That's in Isaiah 7. 
Well, in that same context, in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 7, concerning Emmanuel, we read these words. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. What's the point? The point is this this promised seed of the woman that's going to be the offspring of this virgin is also the son of David who's going to be the one whose throne is established forever. That the promises made in these each individual context, they're the same promise. They're talking about the same person. It's headed towards the same direction. And when we get to Matthew chapter 1, Matthew says that direction, the fulfillment of that promise, all of those promises wrapped together, that's Jesus whose birth we celebrate at Christmas. It all points to him. He's the one who wraps all of those things together. This baby is the God-man. He is Emmanuel, the God-man. And this is another miracle. This is the miracle of the incarnation is not just the virgin birth, which is an aspect of it, but the miracle of the incarnation involves God himself who is creator as distinct from creation, taking on flesh, becoming a man. We're we're so used to saying the God-man and talking about Jesus being fully divine and fully human and all of those things that sometimes we forget just the miracle that this is. There is a a, a distinction between God as the creator of all things and man as part of creation. It's not just that we're small. It's not just that we're fallen and that we're sinful. We are distinctly different because he's the creator. He has always existed. He's unchanging. And we are utterly dependent upon him. He's independent. He's self-determined. And we are dependent upon him for our very existence, not just for having been created, but the fact that we get to draw breath again is the result of Him. We, we are the creation and He's the Creator. And in Jesus, that Creator enters into creation and takes on flesh, becomes one of us. And so Jesus, as the God-man, is Himself a miracle. He has entered right into creation. The God of all things, the Creator, has entered into our world, entered into our flesh. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. We're talking about something that's impossible. It cannot be that Jesus could be completely God and completely man. The the laws of nature don't allow for it. And God overrode those laws to send his son to be one of us. And so the second miracle of Christmas is the incarnation, God becoming man, where God the Son took on human flesh and became one of us. And so we read in Matthew 1, 23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
This brings us to our third miracle of Christmas that we want to talk about today, and that is God is with us. He's the holy creator. Both of those words are important. The fact that he's the creator means that he's independent. He's self-sufficient. He's self-determined. Had we never existed, he would be fine. He doesn't need anything else. He's not dependent upon anything else. Creation is something that he accomplished for his own purposes, but not because he needed to. He's not dependent upon creation. He's, he's wholly separate. And here we are, creatures dependent upon him. And the fact that he is our creator makes it impossible, humanly speaking, makes it impossible for God to be with us. That's why it's a miracle, because he enters into our existence as in this created order. But the fact that he is holy, he's not just the creator, but he is the holy creator, makes this miracle all the more powerful. Because the Son of God, always existing as holy, hating sin, separate from sin, distinct from sin, enters right into this creation. And we just read from Genesis chapter 3 about how the fall has affected creation, not just our own lives, but this whole world. COVID exists because we live in a fallen world, because disease exists. And disease exists because we live in a fallen world. Sin is in this world. And so from his place of eternal existence in a holy union with the Father and the Spirit, he enters into our world. And I, I always wonder, you know, I, I grew up on a farm and on farms you smell things. And, uh, but growing up on a farm, you don't, you don't really notice. That's just kind of your environment. Right? It's not a big deal. And someone comes to visit you, and all of a sudden that person's got a funny look on their face, and it's because, you know, you're next to the hog pens or whatever, right? So you, you get used to the environment you grow up in. And so the environment we've grown up in is a sinful environment. And I, and I, wonder, I wonder how it would be different if, if we were to come from without this environment, come from the outside, from a place that didn't reek of sin, what it would be like to come into this world, what it must have been like for Jesus to come into this world and smell the sin that we're just used to. We don't even know because it's our world for him to enter into that, being holy and hating sin, being separate from sin, to enter into this world. And that's what Christmas is about. Holy God, creator of all things, taking on flesh and entering into this world. We talk about the suffering of Christ and we talk about the cross and we think about the beatings leading up to it and the, and the, and the trials that were false and, the, and, and then being hung on that cross and, and tortured in all those ways he was. And, and that was torture and that was suffering. But Jesus' suffering started the moment he took on flesh. Can you imagine being surrounded by sin when you're a holy being? We're used to being sinful. 
we're used to our own sin that's in here and we're used to the sins of one another and it's just the environment we live in. And here he took on flesh and he was sinned against and his, his parents were sinful and his siblings were sinful and his neighbors were sinful and his rabbi was sinful. Everyone around him was sinful. He took on flesh and so this this third miracle of Christmas, God being with us. We've got to remember who He really is. He's the Holy Creator who then comes to dwell with fallen creatures. Fallen creatures. Enters into our world, not just into this world, but as one of us. Taking on human form. Taking on our flesh. Becoming a man. That, that God would dwell with us is a miracle. It is a miracle. It's not just unlikely. It's not just, uh, you know, it probably wouldn't have happened. It's a miracle. A miracle we celebrate at Christmas time. The fact that He came to dwell among us. Holy Creator amongst fallen creatures. And the third aspect of this that is so miraculous is the reconciliation that he brought about. We could get the smartest people in the world together, lock them in a room, and give them 10 years, 20 years, to figure out a way to resolve the break in the relationship between the Holy Creator and fallen creatures. And they would not come up with it. Maybe if we, you know, put together an offering big enough. Maybe if we offered enough money or enough life or enough something. They, they would come up with ideas of, of how we could placate God, how we could, how we could reconcile ourselves to God. And they would never come up with it. It's not even within the, possibility, the realm of possibility of what we could do. Our, our sin against God is so great. It's so grievous. We could never accomplish it. We could never even think of it. And so the miracle of God reconciling us to himself is amazing. And that's what we celebrate when we celebrate the little baby Jesus. When we celebrate the Advent, we're celebrating the beginning, the the entering into our world of God himself, taking on our form so that He could reconcile us to Himself. That's the price that it takes. That's how far He had to go to reconcile us. It wasn't just that we had mildly offended Him and we needed to apologize. It wasn't just that we had some debt against Him that it would take a long time to repay. The break was catastrophic. The debt was infinite. The break in the relationship was just too much. It's a, it, we couldn't bridge that gap. And so he sends a baby. He sends a baby. He sends his own son in flesh. So when we celebrate Advent season, when we celebrate Christmas, we are celebrating what God has done to reconcile sinful you and sinful me 
to a holy God. He took that on himself to reconcile man to God. That's what we celebrate. And that penalty is so huge. That debt was so great. The break was too much. And so God sent His Son to reconcile us to Him. That's what we celebrate. And so why do we give gifts at Christmas? It's because we're reminding ourselves of the greatest gift that God gave when He gave His own Son. Why are we joyful at Christmas time? It's not just because we're getting things. It's not just because someone thought of me and, and gave me a nice gift or why are we joyful at Christmas time? We're joyful at Christmas time because it's a it's a picture, it's a reminder to us of what God did when he sent his son to reconcile us to himself, to redeem us, to bring us into relationship with himself. That's why we celebrate. That's why we're joyful. That's why we give gifts. And so, if, if, if you're here this morning or you're listening and, and you don't know Christ, you don't have peace with God, you've not been reconciled to Him, you're still on the outside, you need to be aware of just how great that debt is. You need to be aware of just how great and wide that chasm is that you could never cross. That there is a, a debt you owe that's infinite. And if, if you were to pay it yourself, you would pay it for eternity. But for Christmas. Don't reject that Christmas gift of the Father sending His own Son, born as one of us, for the purpose of reconciling us to Himself. If you don't know Christ, you need to be reconciled to God. You need to look to Christ. You need to find peace with God in Him. You need to throw yourself upon Him. As we talked about that chair illustration, He is your only hope. In Him is life, and there's life nowhere else. So look to Him and trust in Him. And this Christmas, be reconciled to God. And, and suddenly the, the gifts that you get, the socks that Grandma gives and, and, and the things that your family gives you will take on a whole new meaning as you rejoice in the fact that God Himself gave the most meaningful gift, the most powerful gift, the, the miraculous gift of His own Son. And if you are a Christian, let's, let's remember that the birth of Jesus is miraculous. We've only looked at three elements of it today, but literally miraculous, not fortuitous, not, oh man, that really worked out and I'm so glad. Not, not lucky, serendipitous. Truly miraculous that God himself would care to reconcile us when we were his enemies and would do what is required to do so that He would send His own Son. And so when we celebrate Christmas time, when we celebrate this Advent season, we're celebrating that love that God has shown toward us in His Son to redeem us. What a loved people we are. What a cared for people we are. That, that God has paid this price, that God has gone to these lengths, that God has literally worked the miraculous in time 
for the purpose of, of truly and eternally redeeming his elect. If you will trust in Christ, if you will look to him, you will find that he accomplishes the purpose for which he was sent, that he took that penalty for sin all the way to the cross, that you might be redeemed. And so that's why we celebrate Christmas, and that's why uh, we have the Advent and the, the readings that we do, and that's why we get together as, as Christians and, and celebrate this. And by the way, we need to celebrate this openly and boldly in front of people. Did you know the world celebrates Christmas too? And they even, may even talk about the baby Jesus. But they love to give gifts. They love to talk about it, love to celebrate it, but without the heart of the whole thing. Christians, you and I know what it's about. You and I know what the heart of Christmas is. And so let's celebrate openly. And let's use this as an opportunity to, to point others towards this Christ whose birth we celebrate on this day. So I praise God for Christmas and I, I praise God that, that he sent his son to redeem me because I, I know what's in here. And he has paid that penalty and redeemed me. That's the greatest Christmas gift. That's a miraculous Christmas gift. And so as we go about the rest of the season, let's not forget this miracle that Christmas is. Let's not forget that this isn't just humdrum. This isn't just, oh, it happens every year, and so it must not be that big a deal. But this is unique. This is miraculous. Miraculous enough for us to worship God for this. Miraculous enough that makes it possible for us to worship God in truth. Let's pray. Father, we have struggled this morning to get our minds around these miracles of Christmas. And there, there are more that we could talk about. There, there are more uh, miracles that you accomplished in bringing this about. Uh, the fact that uh, we have prophecy hundreds of years in advance that spoke of this happening, that's miraculous. The fact of you uh, bringing uh, all of history to this point to accomplish what you said was going to happen, that's miraculous. But Father, this morning we have focused on the miracle that is Christmas. Father, I, I confess that, that I can be distracted by the gifts of Christmas or the family time of Christmas and forget about the miraculous of Christmas, the miraculous love of God for me, a sinner. Father, I pray that you would help us during this season to remember and remind one another of your great love for us as expressed in Christ who took on flesh, who obeyed you perfectly in my place, died in my place, and was raised that I too might have life. I praise you for the reconciliation that I have with you, for the redemption that we have in Christ and it starts on Christmas. So we worship you today. Send us out with grateful hearts, looking to you and rejoicing in this love that you have shown us in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's going to be a family up front to pray with you if you would like to come pray with them. Otherwise, I want to close with these words from Second John, verse 3. 
Grace, mercy, and peace be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. God bless you all, and you are dismissed.